Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. Hello, everyone. Welcome to High Truths. I am excited to be with you for another life-saving episode and conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Let's talk about fentanyl. We all have heard that two grains of fentanyl can kill, like two grains of salt. We've also heard one pill can kill. That is true, but let's dive a little deeper. First, let's learn a little bit about fentanyl from a pharmacy. Fentanyl was designed by Paul Jason, in the early 1960s as a potent pain reliever, a hundred times stronger than morphine. How fast it works depends on how it gets into the body. If it goes in through the vein, it has the fastest effect. In the vein, it goes straight to the blood and has an immediate onset of action. The effect of pain and decreasing breathing may take an additional few minutes. If fentanyl is injected into the muscle, it takes seven or eight minutes to take an effect. If it's eaten or swallowed, fentanyl's effect is slower and goes under first-pass metabolism of the liver. That means it's broken down and only 30% will be available in the blood. Through skin, absorption of fentanyl using patches is the slowest way to take effect. It takes 12 to 16 hours before fentanyl reaches its therapeutic index um, when it's passed used through a patch. The patch includes some alcohol that assists the transforming of fentanyl from the skin and absorbed into the body. By the way, medical patches should never be cut. I had a patient who was prescribed a fentanyl patch and decided to cut it so he wouldn't get so much. And he almost died on a ventilator in the ICU because cutting the patch released more drug faster, not less drug. Fentanyl from the drug dealer is different. A bag of fentanyl is often not pure fentanyl. It is cut with various adulterants such as acetaminophen, Tylenol, xylazine, or other chemicals. Fentanyl also has hundreds of analogs, and the common ones we hear about is carfentanyl, but there are others such as acetylfentanyl and 4-fluoroisobutylfentanyl. They're all trafficked into our country. While it is true that one pill can kill 
and two grains of pure fentanyl can kill, it is not true that a law enforcement officer, a first responder, or a good Samaritan has the same risk of touching fentanyl or providing first aid. With that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, my name is Andrea Green. Thank you, Dr. Love, for your podcast and many years of service in the emergency department. I am one of the charge nurses at Mercy Hospital and have been for many years. Sadly, I have done countless CPRs and resuscitations over these years. We have done many on patients who have overdosed on fentanyl and other drugs. What is the myth of exposure to fentanyl to the medical staff by doing CPR on someone who overdosed? Andrea, thank you so much for your question. Andrea is one of my favorite emergency department nurses and heroes. Um, She will not give up on a CPR patient and pull all strings to save a life. She did that for myself, my husband. One Christmas Eve a few years ago, I called her telling her that my husband was having chest pain and I feared the worst. I flash forward to God forbidding being a widow or living with a cardiac cripple and all the bad things that a, a paranoid wife would have and Andrea was waiting for me as I drove my husband to the hospital. She got him out of the car, onto a gurney as I went to park the car. By the time I parked the car and returned, his EKG showed classic ST elevation uh, heart attack and he was packaged up to go to the cath lab. He's now two stents later and doing well, thank God. And thank God, as well as God's angels, uh, Scripps Mercy's emergency department nurses and Andrea Green. Thank you, Andrea. To answer your question, Andrea, I have no less than a leading national expert on the subject, Dr. Lewis Nelson. Dr. Nelson is board certified in emergency medicine, toxicology, and addiction medicine. He is triple boarded. He's professor and chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine and chief of toxicology at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. He's editor of textbooks and is a national advisor to poison centers, the White House, federal, state, and local agencies, and to me. You can find Dr. Lewis Nelson's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Lewis Nelson, welcome to High Truths. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to have fun. I've been looking forward to seeing you again and having a a nice How Truth uh, conversation, and you're going to do some myth-busting for us. Um, But before we start, I thought um, I would ask you about what drew you. We're both emergency physicians, but you got drawn to toxicology. I call them like the smartest group of ER doctors. And specifically, you became an, an expert in addiction and illicit drugs. How did that happen? Yeah, how um, did that happen? Well, you know, I, I, I loved pharmacology in medical school. Um, and during residency, I always got really interested in developing you know, guidelines and processes for using medications in patients. And I sort of always liked, you know, one of the great parts about emergency medicine is that you're the jack of all trades and you can do everything. You know more about everything than anybody else does, but there's always somebody who knows more about any specific issue than you do. So I always felt I needed to be an expert in something. And, you know, there weren't a lot of options. And it turned out that the option that was available was one that really meshed well with my interests, which was medications and drugs. So I went and did a fellowship in medical toxicology, and I found various areas of interest as I went through it. So for a while, I was interested in cardiovascular drugs, but somehow, you know, because of the patient population we manage, because of the the communities we live in, I always seem to get drawn back towards substances of of use. 
and abuse, you know, cocaine and, and, and amphetamines and, of course, opioids. And as the opioid epidemic sort of took root back in the mid-90s, this sort of became an obvious pathway of interest for mine. And I got involved with a lot of projects and, and organizations that were focused on these sorts of issues. And, you know, back in the, in the day, it, we were really pariahs, uh, the, the group that was saying that opioids are a problem, because that was the, the heyday for the pain management folks. Mm -hmm. we, need more, we need more opioids, not fewer. Addiction is not a real issue. In fact, there used to be this, this sort of whole concept of, of pseudo addiction. Right where we were undertreating pain, making patients look like they had addiction, right? And and it always became just kind of fascinating to me. It was iterative and built upon itself. And I got to where I am today through that through that process. You know, it's so actually really refreshing and validating for me to hear you say that because I just I was drawn to the whole opioid issue from parent victims, um, parents who've lost their children from prescriptions that easily I could have written. And that was way before the CDC or anybody said anything. And they were saying pseudo addiction or, you know, that's not really, um, uh, it's dependence or versus tolerance. And, and I just looked at patients who died and from the morgue and their prescriptions. And it's like, they didn't care whether you called it pseudo addiction or whatever you wanted to call it. These people were dead from prescriptions that we wrote. And it doesn't matter why we have to do something about it and make things, you know. Yeah, it was a tough, it was a tough time for, for physicians. I mean, we were being bombarded in every direction by, you know, and everybody knows this, I think, but whether it was, you know, the Joint Commission or CMS and patient advocacy groups and yeah. the government and FDA telling us we were just doing it all wrong and we needed to prescribe more and more and more and pain was a terrible thing. And um, we were ignoring a really big problem, uh, at least we, the royal we, I mean, some of us were very focused on it. I think in the end, uh, I, I think we turned out to be right. There are still people out there telling us we're not and we're we're ignoring pain. And and I hope we're not ignoring pain. I mean, I don't think anybody that practices medicine can say pain's not a real issue. Um, I remember there's acute pain and then there's chronic pain. And, and in my world, in my mind, chronic pain to some very large extent is due to mismanagement of acute pain. Right. There, there are clearly people with chronic pain syndromes. Nobody's going to argue that, but, but it becomes very expedient for, for diagnostic reasons to call people's problems something that has a medical sounding term associated with it. And we came up with a lot of these syndromes that might be largely masking underlying psychological or psychiatric illnesses, you know, depression or anxiety or, or, or other things. And we sort of gave them names that sounded very fancy. Um, and many of those turned out to have pain associated with them. And that led to the obvious use of good pain medicines for them. Remember, opioids are good pain medicines. Mm -hmm. They're just dangerous pain medicines. And, you know, they are the best pain medicines we have, but they just have a lot of baggage associated with them. And in the, the silver lining, I think, with the whole opioid um, prescription epidemic, which, by the way, I think has ended. We no longer have a prescription opioid epidemic. Um, but the medical community got engaged that we, we, we changed our practices. We found better ways to treat pain without addiction. I do trigger point injections uh, all the time. The other day I had a patient with back pain and he had, was 10 out of 10. And I put a little lidocaine and bupivacaine in his back and he left with zero pain. Um, yeah. right. So we've, we've, we've up our game as a medical community to, to do better. Mm -hmm. And the other silver lines, we came, became more engaged as a whole, as a medical community in the issue of addiction itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Am I allowed to disagree with the host? 
Of course you can. Let's debate. Yeah. Well, so a lot of people say we don't have an opioid epidemic anymore. No, no, no. no. I said opioid prescription. We have a horrible, we have a horrible opioid problem driven by fentanyl. But but the overprescribing of opiates in itself, I think, is over. The medical community still needs to... um, to practice safe prescribing. We can definitely do better than that. But I, I think the, the data, but yes, disagree with me. It's okay. <laughs> so if you look if you look at the data and you just take the CDC data, for example, and you watch your trajectory of opioids from you know the early 90s and of course in 97 and 97 when OxyContin came out, and you watch the trajectory go up. I mean, we hit you know, 30 or 40,000 deaths a year from uh, prescription opioids. Uh, and it sort of plateaued there for many years. And then in 2010, we started seeing an uptick in heroin uh, as the purity increased and the price fell. Um, we started seeing heroin deaths start to rise. And then in 2013, we started seeing fentanyl make a real you know, appearance in earnest. We've always had little mini clusters of, of overdose, but never to the degree we have starting in 2013. So, so right now, clearly, 75% of the opioid-related deaths are due to fentanyl or some equivalent. Um, but the trajectory of the prescription opioid death epidemic has maybe gone down a little bit, but it's still reasonably so there. I'll, I'll, all right, I'll disagree, and I'll tell you why, because I know I think I know the source of, of our disagreement is the data. The CDC is not reporting the data in, in, in a fair way to the medical community, and, and that was one of the things I did when I was at ONDCP, is if you take that CDC data and show which is prescription. So I like to take the deaths and divide them to supply chain. The illicit market, you know, I don't, I don't bring the fentanyl or heroin or fentanyl, you know, or methamphetamines. That the illicit market from the prescription market. If you take prescriptions and take out fentanyl, um, you, you will analyze and you'll come to a different concu- conclusion. So the, the why I say the opioid prescription epidemic is over is if I, and the CDC unfortunately does a disservice to the medical community by reporting all those opiate deaths at once, because it's not fair to include fentanyl, which they consider a medicine as an illicit, uh, as, you know, as part of the medical community. We're not prescribing that, that, that fentanyl. So it's deceiving when you look at that data and you have to hand and unfortunately they don't do this. But I did it when I was at ONDCP to, to show that data of what's medication, what is prescribed and what is illicit. And then you'll see that that, that peak of prescriptions um, was, you know, at the peak in um, 2011 and slowly going down. The, the thing that'll back what I'm saying up is if you look at total opioid prescribing in the United States, way down. If we look at uh, prescriptions of opioids. I, I have that data in from California, but it's the same around the entire uh, United States. Is it's back to where it was in the 1990s. Um, so, so anyway, that's I think we, that's we may the not source be, of confusion. <laughs> yeah, we may not be looking at the same data set because the data I look at does break down the prescription opioids from fentanyl. Obviously, there's you know historically fentanyl, the prescription fentanyl was a problem when we talk about fentanyl, but when you break it down to the synthetics versus the semi-synthetics, mm-hmm. meaning fentanyl, uh, and not methadone, which is which is the other synthetic. Right. Uh, from Sudum, the, from, they call it sudum, synthetic opiates other than methadone. Right, right. exactly. Yeah, so I mean, we, we don't, uh, we can end the debate, but I'll, I'll, I'll not agree completely with you and that's okay. Um, but I, I would agree with this much. 
fentanyl is a much bigger problem today than prescription opioids are and ever were, right? A, a number of people who were prescription opioid users have switched to fentanyl, which is a big problem, right? And there are some unfortunate reasons that that happened. And some of those were due to the things that I and you were working on, right? By trying to reduce prescription opioid use, some people were cut off inappropriately from their opioid source rather than tapered slowly. So we did drive some people to use fentanyl, but a lot of the fentanyl users are people who um, started using fentanyl, just like people started using heroin. And there are other reasons people would get fentanyl as well. But um, I, I do think that we still have a bit of an over-prescribing problem. It's probably not as big as it was at the heyday. I would agree with that. But I, I don't think we don't. I don't think we don't have a, a prescription opioid problem anymore. I think it's maybe a little less than it was. But I think we do agree we have a fentanyl problem for sure. And and I'll agree with you that we can always do better as a medical community in safe prescribing. And that means not just opiates, but also with the benzodiazepines and the combination of, of various drugs that, that can lead people to die. Correct. Agree. We agree. Agree. So we have to finish agreeing, right? <laughs> um, so uh, Andrea Green is one of our rock star nurses, and she realizes that performing CPR in someone who overdosed does not really place her at risk, although there is that myth. Can you explain the toxicology behind that? And uh, yeah, I can. I know we're referring specifically to fentanyl or to any opioid. Oh, yeah. And specifically, the fe you know, people think, oh, that fentanyl that, or that carfentanil that can really kill people. We, we recently saw a headline of six West Point Academy football players who fell victim to fentanyl while um, on vacation in Fort Lauderdale. They were using cocaine, didn't realize that it may have had fentanyl in it. And uh, four of them went into cardiac arrest. Uh, I don't know, a couple ended up on a ventilator, but two said that they were exposed by doing mouth to mouth. Is that, is that possible? Is it? I'll start with the answer first. And the answer is no, but to explain it is a lot. So let's, let's start. Maybe if you don't mind, I could just start at the beginning. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so fentanyl is an opioid that is structurally different than the prescription opioids usually think about it, it's structurally different than morphine and, and codeine and oxycodone and hydrocodone, then that's why it's called a synthetic because it's made in a lab. It's not derived from a plant the way that all of those others are. And they're, they're derivatized. They're changed a little bit from the plant version by adding a, a methyl group or something like that to make it a little different. Um, but it's, it's, it's synthetic. It's made in a lab. And, and those labs are in China and Mexico, and it's imported into this country the way heroin was always imported into this country. And it's sold illegally. But we do use fentanyl as a medication. You know that because we give it to people in the emergency department, the operating room, and et cetera. Um, so one of the things about fentanyl that's very important is it's very potent. And people love that term potency because to them, and particularly to the media, and I, I, do, I don't want to come, to come off saying I'm beating up on the media or on law enforcement, but some of this does sort of fall on their shoulders in terms of sort of a misunderstanding and maybe a little bit of, of miscommunication about some of these issues. But, but potency doesn't necessarily equal dangerous, right? Because no matter how potent something is, if you dose it properly, it's going to be equally as safe as the compound that's not potent. So we know when we give people morphine, let's just make believe you have somebody give them 10 milligrams of morphine, which is a fine dose, maybe a tiny bit high, but let's just say 10 milligrams, you would give somebody 100 micrograms of fentanyl, right? And that's because fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine. 
right? 10 milligrams is 100 times more than 100 micrograms, right? 10 milligrams is 10,000 micrograms. Um, so if I gave you 10 milligrams of fentanyl, you would die. But if I give you 100 micrograms of fentanyl, you'll be fine. So one of the problems we see with the word potency is it's interpreted as meaning dangerous, but there's really nothing inherently more dangerous about fentanyl than any other opioid, right? So that's one big thing that people have to really understand. There's nothing magically dangerous about fentanyl, carfentanil, any of the other drugs. Um, the other big issue in toxicology that's very important is exposure route or exposure pathway, right? If you have a drug sitting on a table and you don't go near it, you can't be exposed to it. And a, especially a drug like fentanyl, which is a powder and it doesn't have any vapor pressure, which means it doesn't volatilize, right? If I put some gasoline on the table, you'd smell the gasoline from across the room because it's volatile, but, but powders don't do that. So just keeping it at the most extreme, a powder sitting on a table can't poison somebody sitting next to it, right? So then you say, how does it get into the body? Well, we know we give it to people IV, and it gets in instantly and its effects work within about a minute. IV in the brain, in the vein, straight to the blood. Into the blood, which then gets right into the brain because the blood goes right to the brain. Um, most people who use it either take it intravenously or snort it. And it turns out that inside of your nose is very vascular and you're able to absorb things very easily through the nasal walls, the nasal mucosa. And there's actually a pathway of drug directly into the brain. It's called nose to brain transmission, which goes up through the olfactory nerves or the nerves that go, that allow you to smell in your nose that go right up into your brain. So when you put heroin or fentanyl into your nose, it works relatively quickly, you know, two, three, four minutes um, because of the very vascular surface and the direct transmission into the brain. But putting it on your skin, for example, doesn't allow it to get into your body because your skin is impervious to fentanyl, right? Especially powdered fentanyl. You could put, you could formulate fentanyl properly to be absorbed through the skin. And they do that with these fentanyl patches that pharma makes, right? But when you put a fentanyl patch on somebody's skin, even when it's properly formulated, it, till, it still takes eight or 12 hours before you get a measurable fentanyl level and the better part of a day or two till you get therapeutic fentanyl levels. So putting fentanyl on the skin or on the lips or in the area where you're in can't really cause poisoning. Now, even if you were to tell me that these cadets had rubbed some fentanyl on their lips and the person giving mouth to mouth put their lips on top of the other person's lips, the absorption might, might potentially happen because you know your lips are attached to your mouth. Your mouth is a, is a mucosal surface. It can absorb things through it the absorption would still take a long time, right? And the amount of drug that you'd have sitting on your lips that, that, would, it, that it would take would be fairly large. I mean, the amount you put in your nose is very, very visible. The amount you're gonna have sitting on your lips is almost invisible. So, so the concept that somebody's got enough fentanyl on their lips or around their mouth to be absorbed into your body quickly enough to cause you to stop breathing in any measurable period of time, it just doesn't make sense. Right. And I think that's really important. So I know everybody's afraid of that. Right. There's no volatility to fentanyl. So it's not like when you breathe in and that person breathes out, he or she is exhaling fentanyl. That doesn't work that way. So there's no exposure route for fentanyl to get into your body, not through the skin, not through the mucous membranes, and not through the air that they're breathing out. 
So the two cadets who were doing CPR and um, whatever happened to them, they re were revived or re seemed to have responded maybe to naloxone. That was what happened to them. So what you what we what we usually see, and this is a this is a real issue that we see a fair amount in the media. I mean, most of us don't see these patients ourselves, um, but you read about them in the newspaper, where um, a, an officer or a, a medic or or a, a, a friend, like in this case, um, get it, get exposed to these. Um, get exposed to fentanyl, and they're told then how dangerous the fentanyl is, or they see how dangerous the fentanyl is, right? Because they see what happened to the other person, and then they get a little bit anxious. They they have what what I think many of us call an exaggerated nocebo effect, right? And I can explain what that is in a moment. And they and they get affected by the substance, but it's not a pharmacological effect. It's not a drug effect. It's a psychological effect. It's an effect. And nobody's suggesting that they're not having an effect, but what they're experiencing is not a drug effect. When they are given a drug like naloxone, which they know is an antidote, or they're told is an antidote, or they're feeling something wet or cold stuck up into their nose, they feel better. They feel protected and they wake up. If you look at people who get exposed in most of these situations, they don't manifest what we usually think of as the opioid toxidrome. They don't look like they have opioid poisoning. Right? We know what opioid poisoning looks like. It's, it's a feeling of well-being, not a feeling of anxiety. You don't get rapid breathing, you get shallow and slow breathing. Right? You don't get sweaty, you sort of go out. And so all of the effects that most of these, all of these people demonstrate are not really consistent with being opioid poisoned, but they're very consistent with suffering the nocebo effect or an anxiety attack. Right. And again, I don't want to, I hope that doesn't come across as pejorative about, about people. People, this is a normal human response to things that we're concerned about. And, and I think it, it can happen to anybody. There's nothing magical about being a doctor. It's happened to doctors. We know about doctors this happened to. It's happened to law enforcement. It's happened to everybody. And it's, it's normal and it's, it's expected, right? I think the problem that we see is that it's being misinterpreted as poisoning, but it really isn't. So if I can just explain the nocebo effect really quickly, because I think people know the placebo effect. I think that's a common term that people think about. And that, that's if I give you a red pill and tell you it can make, you know, make your headache go away. Um, even if the red pill has sugar in it, it makes your headache go away, right? Because it's the power of suggestion. And if I give you two red pills, it works better than one red pill. If you give a blue pill, it works even better, right? The nocebo effect is exactly the opposite. I'm going to give you this pill. It's going to give you a headache, right? And two pills are going to give you a more of a headache. And it has the same exact psychological effect as the placebo effect except it's in reverse. Right. And it's a real, it's a real disease. It's not a weakness. It's not like, oh, you're weak, you were anxious. It, it, it is a biological effect. It happens to people. I mean, some people, they get anxious when they see blood and they get syncopal, you know, they pass out from blood. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. You know, we've all seen it happen to, you know, 220 pounds, six foot two linebackers. You know, it's not it's not a, a, a personal weakness. It's just a normal human response. And you never know it's going to trigger it. Right. But I, I do think that part of the messaging that we put out there to law enforcement in particular about how dangerous this is, how dangerous fentanyl is, has been driving this 
epidemic that we're seeing of, of law enforcement and others being affected, not pharmacologically, but psychologically by the, by the fentanyl. So um, let's, uh, let's just uh, finish our talking points on CPR. Um, yeah. Doing CPR will not cause someone to overdose, either in the hospital, by any of the medical staff, and not if you're doing to someone who passed out in front of you from using um, fentanyl and you're doing CPR to save their lives as you're waiting for 911. That will not make you overdose, period. Correct. Think about how many times that happens. You know, and half the people we see brought into the ED, they're getting CPR mouth to mouth by a family member or a bystander. And we don't see these people getting affected, right? We know that the drug is dangerous if used improperly, but we also know that the drug is distributed by drug dealers and it's manufactured and transported by other people and they're all fine, right? We know the users use them and they're not dying every time they touch or use the drug. If the drugs were that dangerous, there would be no more drug users anymore. They'd all be dead. There'd be no more drug dealers anymore. They'd all be dead. Right. So yes, the drugs can be dangerous when they're used at the wrong dose. And it is essentially only a dose problem. Right? Right. So a big dose will kill you. And if you, we see this, we see people who take either too much drug or the drug is improperly concocted by the drug dealer. Right? It's very hard to mix drugs that are very potent safely. Right? It's one thing when you're putting spoons full of a drug into a mixture, but when you're putting pinhead amounts into a mixture, it's very easy to add a couple of extra pinheads and not know you've done it. And now you have a drug mixture that's got three, four, five times more drug than it should have. It doesn't mean the exposure route is going to be any different. You still have to get it into the body, but if you put it into the body in an appropriate way, it's going to have an exaggerated effect. Right. And the, the other thing about CPR or rescuing someone, giving naloxone, even if you didn't have gloves on and you're giving the naloxone and you're touching someone's nose who may have snorted um, fentanyl and you're, you're going to touch that or secretions, you will not overdose. Um, you, you, will not. you will not overdose by giving naloxone in, in any way. You will not. In fact, one of the things we sometimes recommend is after you give naloxone, squeeze the nose a little bit to help push the drug in a little bit faster because it seems to have a beneficial effect. I would not be concerned about doing CPR, which is pressing on the chest. There's zero risk. I would not be concerned about mouth to mouth other than the fact that it's something that most of us probably wouldn't do for people we don't know and love or at least like. Right. But if you were willing to do it on a family member or a friend or somebody that you didn't know because you're that kind of person, uh, it's not dangerous. I, I do not think there would be any risk. There's no mechanism to think there would be a risk. There's no exposure path where I think there'd be a risk. And just knowing how often it's done from an epidemiological perspective, we would have seen it if there were a risk. Right. So um, I invited you to view a, um, a video from a San Diego. Uh, officer was exposed to fentanyl. We had a whole panel, kind of medical panel, that reviewed that. Um, you were uh, one of our leaders on the panel. And what struck me, and I, by the way, that, I thought that was a, a really nice um, event um, of getting medical professionals and law enforcement professionals to, and kind of sharing an opinion and understanding where, where the debate or misinformation was. I think that that was very helpful. Um, but what struck me is what opposing opinions there were. Um, maybe it shouldn't have struck me in the society that we have today, but but like polar opposites and what law enforcement believed was a medical issue 
and all the medical professions were saying, no, this 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 was a medical event. Um, this was a fentanyl exposure, but this was not a fentanyl overdose. Um, and it's it was just what a polar opposite in in opinions. What are you? Why is there such a difference? I think you hit the nail on the head, though, with your comment. Uh, we have sort of moved in a, a world where we discount scientific opinion. We tend to discount evidence. Uh, we rely on people to tell us the truth, uh, but we don't know who the person with the truth is. So we believe who it is we like to believe. Um, I've always been a believer in evidence and science, um, not necessarily authority. Um, and because the DEA or a police officer commissioner or somebody like that says that it is so doesn't make it so. There has to be evidence. And if there's not evidence, it has to at least be theory to understand why something would happen. And again, I, I think that these, these officers, and we're going to just talk about officers, but there are others that are involved as well. These officers are having a moment. There is no question that something is affecting them. And I could fully see why mm -hmm. as a non-medical professional and somebody who really understands pharmacology, toxicology, clinical medicine, why you would look at that and interpret it the way that you did. These are people you know, you wouldn't, you would find it hard to believe they're suffering some adverse psychological effect and you have to chalk it up to the drug they've been exposed to. But that's just not the way it is. But when we have the DEA putting out information about how dangerous this drug is and you should stay away from it and, you, you, you know, other, other organizations doing the same thing, it's very damaging. This is a patient population who is already marginalized, right? They, they don't need more marginalization and stigmatization for the disease that they have. They really need help. And, and if, you, if, you, if you're afraid to go in and try to support their breathing, or to give them the lock zone, or to do CPR, or to call an ambulance, they're going to die, right? And these are people who really shouldn't die if they get a reasonable amount of treatment. Opioid overdoses are very, very easy to treat. Unlike cocaine and other drugs, opioid overdoses are super easy. The only reason you ever die of an opioid is your breathing stops, which means all you have to do is breathe for them. And if you don't want to breathe for them, you can give them naloxone and you're done. That's why mouth to mouth is so effective if you're willing to do it in somebody. But there's nothing else about an opioid that kills you. When we hear these, these, these cadets were in cardiac arrest, the reason they were in cardiac arrest is because they had respiratory arrest. When you stop breathing, eventually the oxygen levels in your heart drop low enough that your heart stops beating. Right? So respiratory arrest leads to cardiac arrest. The opioids are not cardiotoxic. They don't affect the heart. Right. It's just, but when you're not breathing, then eventually your heart stops working. Correct. Yeah. But I, I think the message is, I don't think there's any ill will or ill intention by law enforcement or, or media. Um, what they're saying is true. One pill can kill if you eat it or snort it, not if you're doing CPR or rescuing, right? So uh, there's just a misperception. Two grains of fentanyl can kill you if it was pure. Um, and, and you in, put it IV or in your, you know, in your nose and it was two grains of pure fentanyl. But most fentanyl is cut and not pure. And two grains, won't, if you touch it, is not going to kill you. So it's the messaging, right? It's true on one, in one scenario, but it's not true in a different scenario. 
It is there. Is, oh, absolutely. And this is where the words are very important. This is why I talked at the beginning about potency, because they always talk about this drug is so potent that it kills everybody that it sees. You'll read, you'll read in the news that they had a heroin bust of 20 kilos of heroin, enough to kill New York City or Los Angeles, mm-hmm. right? Every person. Well, that's a gross misstatement of the facts, because you would have to get that drug into all of these people. Right. So it's very sensationalistic to say things like that. And it's it's a bit misguided. Well, it's not wrong. Right. I'm sure if we did the math, we would find out if we gave a gram, a thousand micrograms, I'm sorry, milligram, a thousand micrograms of fentanyl to every human being in Los Angeles, we could probably kill all or most of them. But you can't get it into people. So it's not it's not really a a reasonable way to describe the 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 effect of this drug. So so it is. It is, it's a good way to sell newspapers, it's a good way to catch headlines, but it's not a good way to communicate risk because it's not really an accurate representation of what the risk is. You, you raise the question about pills, and I think pills are a really big deal now. You know, in some jurisdictions, in some parts of the country, most of the fentanyl that people use is snorted. In a lot of parts of the country, particularly out west now, we're seeing a lot of, of fentanyl in pill form. People are going out and they're buying what they think are Percocet or they buy, they think of Vicodin, right? Which is, you know, oxycodone or hydrocodone. But in fact, they're counterfeit pills. They're not real prescription opioids. And they're filled with fentanyl. This is how Prince died. Remember the Prince in Minnesota? He died of a fentanyl pill, counterfeit pill ingestion. And if you put the wrong amount in the pill, it's lethal. So there's no question. Well, I don't know if it's a wrong amount. Any amount, it's deceiving. You think that that was a, a Xanax or a pill, uh, you know, and it didn't have it. Those pills had no Percocet. It was all fentanyl. So I, I, but, if they put, but if they put the right, and I'll use quotes too, if they put the right amount of fentanyl in that pill, it wouldn't have killed, but they put the wrong amount, meaning too much. Remember, the, a, a tenet of toxicology, right? The underpinning of everything I do in my whole career is very simple. Dose makes the poison. Right? There's everything is toxic. It just depends on the dose. And everything is non-toxic. It just depends on the dose. Right? Cyanide is toxic, but cyanide is also non-toxic, depending on how much you get. Right? Water is toxic, oxygen is toxic, but obviously you couldn't live without them. So everything has a proper dose. And if you give too much or too little of some things, uh, it could be problematic. So if they give the right amount of fentanyl in that pill to get you high, which is the intent. I don't know. I have trouble with saying the right amount of an illegal drug that that you know that you don't even know. You thought you were buying a Xanax. How could that even be the right amount? To me, I, I think that that could be murder, right? I'm, but I'm using the term right amount, meaning non non lethal amount, maybe safe amount. Remember, o- what, opioids. Maybe what, maybe a better word to say instead of the right amount. It's a uh, medically therapeutic dose. Right. Right? It's more than medical therapeutic because medical therapeutic doses don't get you high. Right. And so if you're getting, if you're taking this to get high, you need more. Remember, there's there's what we call the therapeutic window. You use that, it's a good word. And that's the difference between the the, the lethal dose and the therapeutic dose. And it could be very narrow. So the difference between a a therapeutic dose and lethal dose could be 
double, or it could be very wide, or it could be tenfold, right? right? So you can take a lot more. Um, if things have too narrow a therapeutic window, they're, they're very dangerous. If they have a wide therapeutic window, you can take a, a bit extra and not get sick. But you're right, it's a semantic issue. And when I say the right dose, you're right. It, it's it, I'm using the word right dose, meaning non, non-lethal dose. Right. As opposed, right, not necessarily, because if you're buying, if you're buying alprazolam, Xanax, and you're getting fentanyl in it, it's not the right drug at all. If you're buying oxycodone, you're getting fentanyl, it's not the right drug. And so it can't be the right dose because it's not the right drug. But I think the concept I'm trying to get across is safe. But even safe is a funny word, right? right? Because it's safe from lethality, at least in this case. Right. And it depends what other things you're taking, et cetera. But but, um, now we understand the risks. No risk of CPR, no risk of naloxone. Some people may have a reaction that not is not an overdose, that may be a nocebo or a stress reaction. We do not expect the public to understand or know the difference, right? This is Monday quarterbacking, right? If you see someone go down, you don't know what's going on, give naloxone, ask questions later. I think that's a fair assessment. It's very hard. I mean, in the hospital, we have machines, we have stethoscopes, we have a lot of people that do this for a living standing around. In the field, you walk up to somebody who's not is not conscious or looking atypical. Naloxone is not going to hurt anybody who's not opioid dependent. Right. And and in that San Diego case, we really, we praised the first responders because you, you, you know, that that was later for a diagnosis of, of, of whatever the officer had was, that was not a fentanyl overdose, but, but responding with Narcan in the field where someone's going down, you know, you, you, that's what you do. Um, and, and they absolutely did the right thing. And then, you know, then later where you can pontificate about what, what, what really happened. But, it, um, but you know, you see someone go down, give naloxone, call 911, let us figure it out um, what really happened later. I agree. But the next step is is the messaging. So to prevent that from happening again, we have to change the message. The message can't be that this is so dangerous. So when that officer opened up the back of the truck and he found that white powder there and suddenly without even really touching it, got very dizzy and and went out with his eyes open and his partner came. If I was his partner and I didn't know what was going on, I'd be panicked too. I think that's totally reasonable. Call the call EMS and give the naloxone. But now we have, you're right. We have to do a post-mortem, so to speak. We have to revisit this and we have to stop messaging how dangerous fentanyl is in casual exposure. It's very dangerous to people who stick it in their nose or veins. It's not very dangerous to people who are exposed to it in, in a passive way. Right. Or pills, also dangerous in pills. And, but right. But, but re, uh, doing a rescue, um, you're, you're not going to get exposed. So here's another headline that you could help us with myth busting. It is from Cape Cod Healthcare. Um, the, the healthcare system put the hospital and ambulance system on divert. That means they closed to traffic. No one else is allowed to, you know, come in the hospital. They called a hazmat team after a patient was in possession of fentanyl. Um, that was in January 6, 2022, not too, not too long ago. Do we need hazmat if there's fentanyl on the scene? I, I'm going to give you my answer. I, 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 I think I know your answer, but we want to You're going to get hazmat teams telling you that I'm wrong, but I can feel pretty confident that there is no hazmat. If there were, if there were, if somebody brought a kilogram of fentanyl in and blew it all over the place so that it was everywhere, I'd want that cleaned up by a hazmat team. But if somebody brings in a little bag of fentanyl and it spills on the floor or it's on their person, 
there is no need to have a hazmat. I mean, they did the same thing at a school in Connecticut recently where a kid brought in fentanyl from home and, and died. They closed the school and it was a terrible case, obviously, but yeah. they closed the school and decontaminated it. But there are really no contamination risks. You know, fentanyl in a container or even fentanyl a little bit on a counter, you can wipe up with a little uh, wipe with some cleaning solution. It's going to be fine. Just think about everybody that uses fentanyl in their home has other people coming into their home the next day. Everybody that buys fentanyl on the street, the person who sells it to them has touched that fentanyl. They're all alive. There's just no reason to think that a small fentanyl exposure presents, again, casual, small amounts on a surface, for example, poses any risk to anybody. It could be wiped down if you're really concerned, but the idea that the place has to be decontaminated does not make any pharmacological sense. Again, you're gonna hear differences of opinions. And one of my concerns is that we, again, we blow this in, out into some very, very dangerous event and we further add psychological baggage to people who are exposed and stigma to people who use. And the... I love what you explained to the officers, too, is a good way to figure out whether you need to be scared or not is, you know, if you walk into a, a drug lab in Mexico and they're all wearing their hazmat suits as they're dealing with the, with the huge amounts of product, then, you know, you probably want to wear a mask and have your hazmat suit, too. But if you are coming onto a scene uh, and people are using and there's baggies around and they've been fine until they, you know, ingested it. Uh, um, in their nose or in a pill or whatever, you're not, nothing's going to happen to you by, by touching that, right? We, we touch fentanyl in the hospital all the time, right? Um, we do. We do. So I think the that that's a good, good, you know, clue um, whether you need to be scared or not. Right, right, right. The first case that I remember reading about was in Ohio. I forget if it was 2018 or 2016, but um, an officer pulled a, a driver over and saw some white powder sitting on the seat next to the driver. And it was, he was outside the car, the driver had rolled down his window and the officer started feeling sick and he got sweaty and he got short of breath and he won't wind up past, he passed out and they called the ambulance and he got naloxone. The powder turned out to be fentanyl, um, if I remember correctly. Um, and there was no exposure pathway. The problem again in that case, and this has happened in other cases too, is that that driver was actually convicted of assaulting a police officer, right? Which just doesn't seem reasonable. I am not condoning drug use and I'm not condoning assaulting police officers, but- So I think, a, I think that that was a case in um, Loretta, Tennessee, where a police officer- happened multiple times. Yeah, and um, so he convicted, he, he pulled over, there was a woman who was uh, slumped over the wheel and there was a two-year-old in their back. Is that the one? Two, there was a two-year-old in the back seat. The officer actually rescued her, gave her naloxone, revived her, then took the powder, uh, went back to the office and um, was, I don't know, exposed or had some type of reaction to that. Doesn't sound, um, again, he was sweating uh, and, mm -hmm. and uh, was revived with naloxone. And then he um, pressed charges on the woman for endangering him and the baby. Right. So my right. question and is, was he really in danger by, by, by touching a baggie of fentanyl? And, and was the baby involved, 
at risk by her smoking fentanyl in a closed car with the baby in the back. Well, that's not obviously good parenting skills. And I'm sure the child has a lot of problems aside from that. But I would probably say there's little risk to being in an environment where somebody's smoking fentanyl, although a closed car would probably be a bad place to do that. We, we've seen this with a million other drugs. We talk about passive cannabis smoke and passive, passive tobacco smoke. And, you know, when you look at these, when you look at these cases where somebody's sitting in a room where everybody else is smoking pot, they don't really get high. And most of them don't even get measurable levels in their body. So it's really assuming fentanyl is even remotely like that. It's probably a small risk. But if it's going to happen somewhere, it's going to be in a car with the windows rolled up with somebody smoking a lot of drug. I do think the child has a lot of issues to, to deal with. I don't think that the police officer's exposure to fentanyl rises to the level of assault or whatever in that case. I'm talking about a different case, but there's been many, many cases mm -hmm. like this. Um, again, that's a legal question, and I don't want to step on legal toes. But the, if the legal opinion is being rendered because they think that the person's drug poisoned the officer, intentionally or not, I think that's a problem because there's no reason to think that that happened. It's just, it's a, in my, in my very definitive words, it is not possible for that to happen. So, and, and I think that that, again, we want to dispel any mix ex as far as exposure and rescue. Um, you know, the analogy that I had of having little, you know, bags are safe in, in, in the house with, with one exceptions. And, and we've run into this and that's babies. We've had babies like crawling on the floor, you know, they put everything in their mouth and then the baby's down. Um, and, uh, so, you know, they're much smaller and just a little bit can, um, can stop their breathing. And, uh, I think that that, that's, that's a different than, than adults having bags around the house. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I certainly hope I didn't come across saying it was okay to do that. We were talking about the car, but certainly we know that kids do that. And hand-to-mouth activity, which the kids do, is a problem. So if the kid touches the powder and then starts licking the powder mm -hmm. off their hands, you're talking about measurable amounts of powder on this child's hands. Yeah. And you're right. It's a dose-response problem. So if a child's a tenth the size of an adult, it's going to take 10 times less or a tenth the amount of drug to get them to the same level of, of clinical effect right? Because that's just dose response. Or, you know, it, it's got to do with how many milligrams per kilogram of drug you've put into your body. And they're just fewer kilograms. So it takes fewer milligrams. Um, but certainly that's fine. We see, we see, you know, these sorts of exploratory exposures all the time, not, not just to fentanyl, but to all sorts of pills, some of which are substances of abuse, some of which are just therapeutic medications. And um, just to continue myth, you know, looking at these headlines, I think that another one, I think, I don't know if I sent this to you or you sent it to me, but one of these cases where um, I think where the 13-year-old boy was found unresponsive and died at the school, and there were hundreds of bags in his house and then the school, but the officer quoted said, the strength and potency of this product can be deadly to anyone coming in contact with, including absorption through the skin. So again, here's a, a law enforcement officer disagreeing uh, with what you just educated us, uh, you know, a toxicologist. You, you basically, you cannot, you're not going to touch the stuff in the skin and, and overdose. Look, I mean, I wouldn't suggest you take the powder and start rubbing it on your skin to prove me wrong, because I'm sure at some level you can probably poison yourself. But 
if you in a typical casual exposure, there is no risk. I, again, I'm going to just state the empiric evidence, which is people sell this stuff, carry this stuff, and use this stuff all the time. And they're not all dying of casual exposure. There's just no reason to think a police officer's skin or a rescuer's skin or a doctor's or a nurse's skin is any different. We have how we find fentanyl packs from people all the time in the emergency department. We pick them up and we throw them in either into the sharps container or depending on the amount, we give it to law enforcement. Right. This is what happens. The vast majority of law enforcement that picks up the fentanyl packets, the vast majority of rescuers and other people don't get sick. Some do a tiniest, tiniest percentage. And these are the people we're talking about that make the news. There's something unique about them. Either they have some very unique sensitivity to fentanyl, which I don't even want to plant that seed because it doesn't exist. No. Or there's, there is a stress response, an anxiety response, a nocebo effect. This is a normal human response. And, and we've we've seen that because you'll, you'll have one headline of an officer down and then the next week there'll be like a rash of them. And it's because they read these headlines and, and, and we're scary. We are scaring officers. It's like, oh, two pills, you know, the, the video that we watch, we heard, okay, be careful with that. Just be careful, be careful with that. And uh, we say, okay, that's why you need to wear a mask and have universal precautions. And, and you should, because you don't know what you're touching. You should have universal precautions. But if you didn't, you know, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to kill you. Um, the, the other, you know, I, I kind of, I'm hesitating if I should disagree, like, how can I disagree with a toxicologist? But you mentioned that there's no, uh, secondhand effect with, with marijuana use. Um, and I think there is secondhand effect with, with cannabis use. They actually have done studies of, uh, what causes more secondhand, um, exposure of a Marlboro cigarette, uh, vaping or, uh, a blunt. And then it measured the particles of toxinogens uh, out there. And actually, more than a Marlboro cigarette was a blunt. And I think we've seen and it, everything's just like what you said. It's all dose dependent, right? So a little bit versus a lot of it. But with the high THC content out there, um, there, there is effect um, from secondhand smoke. Um, and, and like you said, it's all dose dependent. It has to be high potency, a lot of it. And I think people can be exposed from and have effects from secondhand marijuana smokes, but you can disagree with me and I'll listen. I won't vehemently disagree with you. I think there's, there's shades of gray there, but I think that if you get exposed to enough, certainly passively like that, you can get affected. I think it just depends on what we're doing. You're walking down the street and you smell some pot in the air. You're not going to go home and test positive for cannabis. Right. You're in a car locked in a room with 20 people smoking pot. It makes sense you're going to absorb some of it, but the amount you absorb is remarkably little. And whether you get high or not versus whether you can find it in their body, right? Because you can find it in the urine pretty easily with no clinical effects. And I guess if you look, depending on how much you're exposed to and what test you're looking for the clinical effect, you might be able to find something. So again, I don't want to disagree too strongly on this. There, you know, it took us many years to like secondhand tobacco to, it was, it took us many years to agree. And now we all agree that there is an effect of tobacco. And now we all even agree that there's second effect of tobacco. And uh, we're just a few years behind with mar marijuana. I mean, it, it makes sense that if you're going to have secondhand tobacco effects, you know, whatever they are, and there are, they're real, then there would be for the equivalent amount of, of, smoking any kind of chemical, whether it's cannabis or something else. So maybe the semantic difference, what we're saying is, I agree fully that there's secondhand tobacco effects on lung function, 
right? And yes. cannabis lung function. I'm talking about whether you're going to get high mm-hmm. from cannabis smoke. Correct. Whether you, yeah, that, that's the difference. You know, I, I totally agree. Oh, secondhand smoke effects on lung function and other things, terrible, unquestionably. But whether you're going to get nicotine affected or, or THC, the, the active ingredient in marijuana affected, and you're going to get high from secondhand smoke is a little different. So no. Right. And that would be dose dependent, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so that's right. And that's the dose issue, right? The particulates, you definitely inhale and it definitely causes long-term effects unquestionably. Cool. Um, uh, the other headline that I contacted you about, this is from December 13, 2021. Florida Poison Control Center recorded 40 people hospitalized for bleeding. People are having, you know, internal bleeding, bleeding, who knows where from where, after taking spice in Tampa, Florida. And uh, it was not the first time we've heard of that um, because spice, which is synthetic uh, uh, marijuana, can be cut with different things. But explain that to us. So, so spice is a brand name, as is K2. And what they really are are finely ground leafy material, which is not cannabis, but it looks a little like cannabis, um, which are sprayed, which are doused in a chemical and the chemical is called a synthetic cannabinoid. And there's a whole bunch of them and they go by, you know, a, a lot of chemically kind of names. Um, but it's, it's called synthetic marijuana because it looks like marijuana, but it's actually not marijuana that's been synthesized. So it's a little bit of a misnomer. You might call it synthetic cannabinoid, right? Because that's the actual chemical that's on there. The, the reason that they're called that is because they either look like THC chemically, right? If you looked at the structure on a piece of paper and most of them don't look like that, but a few do, um, but, or they bind to the cannabinoid receptors in the brain and they cause clinical effects. Interestingly, even though they look like cannabis, like THC, or they bind to the cannabinoid receptors in the brain, their clinical effects are not like cannabis. Right. They, they tend to be unlike cannabis, which, you know, tends to be a little bit illusionogenic and euphorogenic and hallucinatory. These tend to be fairly dysphoric and people feel uncomfortable and people get very agitated, almost have an amphetamine like quality to them, which is not what you'd expect from from smoking cannabis and getting THC into your body. So these are very cheap. And they tend to be used by the most marginalized in society. We see very heavy use in homeless populations and, and very under um, you know, disenfranchised populations. One of the problems that we've seen randomly, and nobody really knows why this has happened, but there's been a handful of these epidemics of these clusters, like the one you just talked about, is somebody adds to that mixture a long-acting anticoagulant, usually called brodificum, but there are a few others, which is like warfarin, which many people take for their blood clots or their heart valves. Um, but instead of needing to dose it daily, one dose lasts you for three months. Mm-hmm. Now, why it's added, as I said, we don't know, but we do know that it's been there. And when people take it, they're using their synthetic cannabinoid, their, their, their spice K2, unwittingly, unknowingly, they're getting this brodificum or some equivalent added into their body, which is gonna have an anticoagulant effect. And they start to bleed. When they brush their teeth, they bleed. They start to bruise easily. Sometimes they see blood in their urine. Sometimes they bleed to death, right? We know that these are very dangerous drugs, just like people on, on, on warfarin, which is Coumadin, um, they sometimes develop bleeding. Uh, people on, you know, inadvertently on drugs like these long-acting anticoagulants, they're used as rodenticides primarily. 
So originally people thought it was just picked up inadvertently as people were manufacturing this stuff because it's a rodenticide on the floor. Somebody inadvertently put it in the mixture, got contaminated, but it seems to have happened enough times that there almost seems like there's a little bit of intent in there, but from a pharmacological perspective, it's hard to explain why that would be. I, but it, I it, agree with you. It, no. sounds, it does sound evil, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is evil. Um, here's a different headline. Um, Paseo County, Florida, law enforcement officers are issuing a new drug warning of isotinazine. Did I say that right? It's called ISO. Mm-hmm. 20 times more deadly than fentanyl. They say it can kill you if it touches the skin or accidentally inhaled. Uh, tell us about this ISO. Well, I mean, I, I could just start back at the beginning of the of the podcast. That's right. We we if we were been paying attention, I should know what you to say. It's all about the dose. Yes, but I'll tell you what this is. Okay. So there's a class of drugs called the nitazines, right? Isotonitazine is one of them, uh, and there's a handful of others. It's a drug that we've known about for I don't know seventy years. It was there's a whole handful of opioids that we've just never commercialized and used. It's a synthetic opioid that is not structurally similar to fentanyl. And that's important. And we can come back why that's important in a minute. Um, It is potent. It's probably around the same potency or maybe a little more potent than fentanyl. But again, potency is meaningless if you dose it safely. I know we don't want to say appropriately, Um, but if you dose it- In a a certain window. Right. If you, so if I know that this drug, let's just say the drug's 10 times the potency of fentanyl, I have to give you 10 times less of the drug than would give you a fentanyl. But remember, you don't take, and one of the tricks here is you don't take the actual drug in isolation. It's mixed into a a powder or a formulation of some sort, because you would never be able to see this amount of drug. It is well smaller than a pinhead. So, I mean, that's true with even aspirin, I mean, or, or acetaminophen, right? A 325 milligram pill is in a, in, in a two gram pill. So most of that Tylenol tablet you're taking is filler. It's not acetaminophen. And so it's the same thing here, except 325 milligrams of acetaminophen is way bigger than a couple of micrograms of a nitazine or, or a fentanyl. Um, so it's impossible to see. So it has, and you're trusting the drug dealer to mix it safely. And as I said, it's easy to throw in a couple of extra pinheads full and but, not even- But see, I don't know that if I'm just touching a baggie. First of all, I don't even know what's in the baggie. I mean, that, right. that toxicology happens later. How do I know if there's this ISO, deadly ISO stuff that picking up the baggie is not, you know, that? and like you said, I can't trust the drug dealer for cutting it right. How do I know that that's safe to touch? There's no way. Well, it's going to be safe to touch. I'm not concerned about touching. Okay. T- I, this drug, like every drug, it's not going to get your skin just doesn't let stuff in. If, if your skin let stuff in and out, we'd be walking around like this dried sponge all the time, right? We would not, we'd never be able to function. It holds water in, it keeps water from getting in. You, you know what happens. I mean, we take a shower, you don't come out looking like the state puff marshmallow man because you've absorbed that out of water, right? That's just not the way that's what our skin does. It prevents all those things from happening. Um, how do you know it's there? The, the, the easy answer is you don't. I mean, could you ever possibly find out? Of course, if you sent that drug for analysis, you can find out exactly what's in there. But if you, could you imagine every time you wanted to use some drugs, you sent it out for a $500 lab test? You'd never, you'd never be able to afford that. So we we want people to use universal precautions, but if they didn't, not to be scared to death that they're going to like touch it and then, and fall that. Oh, you're talking about the touching part of it. Yeah. That's what they, because that was the headline that they said, so potent that if you touch it, you'll die. I would say that I would, Obviously, I have absolute confidence that it's not going to get through the skin, but wearing gloves is a no-brainer. 
you know, I would, if I were touching something knowingly, I would put gloves on too. But I do know that again, people touch you without gloves on all the time and they don't all, they don't all just right. stop breathing and die. But I thought you meant, how do you know that if you were a drug user, how do you know that the mixture is okay? And the answer is you don't because you're relying on the drug procurer to sell you something that's safe because it's a bad business model to kill off your clients by giving them a drug that's far, you know, too concentrated to be safe. Um, but we can, we do find out when these things hit the market, because we do start seeing an increasing number of overdoses and even deaths. And then, you know, the, the public health folks get to work, law enforcement gets to work and they get this stuff analyzed. We find out what it is. And these tend to be very short lived. That's why they are. We've had these clusters since the seventies mm-hmm. with fentanyl and other things appearing in these clusters. Of, of drugs. Remember drugs, it's always interesting if people don't buy drugs often, drugs are sold in little name brand quantities. That's right? so when you buy a drug, there's a stamp on it, on the little glacine envelope that tells you what it is. It might, uh, it might just be a Mercedes Benz symbol, or it might be a Playboy bunny. So when you buy it, you like it, you go back and get the same thing next time. So what we'll often see the first of the big epidemics was something called China white and China white was stamped on the envelope. And that was an epidemic a cluster that occurred in Pittsburgh. We've had them in New York. We had Tango and Cash a couple of years ago, where that was the the, the stamp on the um, on the the envelope that people were selling the the drug in. And so we we quickly, you know, we do a lot of epi and a lot of surveillance. And our law enforcement in the state I live in um, sends around a weekly bulletin of the content of confiscated drug samples. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. That's in New Jersey, right. so you're able to know what's going on. Right. I, mean, I don't think everybody knows what's going on, but we are able to follow um, at the, the poison center mm-hmm. oh. at, through the poison centers, through, through emergency departments, oh, through other health, nice. health agencies. It is very helpful. But you know what? I was going to tell you why the nitazines are a problem from a clinical perspective. As fentanyl had been a problem, I know this is a big issue that you're on the forefront in, which is testing fentanyl in patients' urine. Right. Um, most hospitals, as we've learned, don't test for fentanyl, including my hospital doesn't test for fentanyl, despite the fact that I pushed for it now for several years. We're finally getting the technology to do it, I'm told. I'm oh, I can help. I, I can help you with that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the convincing. It's the, the I work in a public hospital. We need money to buy the technology. We're getting it. I'm told we're getting it. It's not it's not the desire. It's the ability. Um, the problem is that the urine tests for opiates right, tests for morphine, because fentanyl has no structural similarity to morphine, it's not found, and you know this, Mm -hmm. but I'm just going to say it anyway, it's not found by the standard utox. Mm -hmm. So you need to test for fentanyl. The problem with the nitazines and many other what's sometimes called research opioids or research chemical opioids are that they're structurally different from fentanyl and from morphine, so the assays won't find those. So in order to get those identified, you have to send them out to a reference lab for advanced testing, which costs money and takes time. So there's no clinical role for that testing right now. It's not going to be very helpful. So when somebody comes in and they have an opioid overdose, you give them naloxone. Naloxone works. And we could talk about naloxone, but naloxone works really well to reverse fentanyl, even big doses of fentanyl, right? And it works as best we know from the nitazines. It works well to reverse those, just like it reverses oxycodone and hydrocodone and morphine and heroin. So uh, the, tr- the trick here is that it's not going to necessarily show up on a urine tox test. So an, a nitazine won't show up in an opioid tox, and it won't show up in a fentanyl tox tree, right? As best you know right now, that's true. For right now. 
Um, that's great. And it's a perfect segue because I did want to ask you about fentanyl testing. And you and I uh, were both uh, involved in the emergency department drug surveillance study. That was kind of cool that we were across uh, the country from each other and able to be in the same study. Um, I'm in San Diego and you're in New Jersey. And we sent urines from the emergency department that had uh, toxicology ordered on them, and they got comprehensive testing. Can you tell us about your in involvement in the study, and have you learned something from, from that? Well, it was great for us because we don't do advanced testing on our samples. You know, we, we get, in fact, I don't really use a lot of eutox testing on patients who come with drug overdoses because I know what they've taken. So proving it for $100 doesn't really help me very much clinically. From an epidemiological perspective, there's a huge benefit to collecting that data. Unfortunately, somebody has to pay for it. One of the nice parts about the study was they paid for it. So they took our, our urine samples and they ran them for all of these wonderful exotic tests that we'd always love to be able to do just because we're so interested in what our patients are using, but somebody's got to pay for it. Um, and they found exactly what we'd expect is they were using all an array of fancy exotic fentanyl derivatives and other opioids. There's a fair amount of other drugs out there, cocaine and methamphetamine and and fencyclidine and all kinds of other things. So it validated what I think we knew, and it was nice to see, and it was nice to be able to compare over time the trajectory of some of these um, drug use and compare it to other parts of the country. Because you know, even though we're one big country, we have a lot of regionalization of drug use, and it's it's kind of interesting to see and watch the, the watch the drug craze waves, et cetera, move around the country, and even from Canada, which has actually been the leader in a lot of these new drug trends lately. It's always historically been here. So I've, I've heard, you know, a lot of toxicologists say, you know, we don't need the drug test, you know, and, and ER doctors, we don't need the drug test. And that's true. If someone comes in with overdose of pinpoint pupils or whatever it is, we take care of the patients. We ask questions later, right? We're going to give you naloxone, put you on the ventilator, fix your blood pressure, admit you to the hospital. And I don't care what the drug test is, but the drug test I think has more than just a epidemiological value like we did with the study that we did together. Now that I have fentanyl testing um, in real time in the emergency department, um, the, the reagent costs 75 cents on average per test. More, it'd be, it costs less for you guys because there's a, you know, uh, if you order lots of tests, there's a, you know, like the cost per test is less. But uh, it, it changes people's the conversation after the overdose, right? Or after the test. If somebody comes in, it's like, they think that they used whatever. I had a guy the other day who thought that he used Viagra and he was very anxious, something's wrong with me, I'm having a heart attack. He wasn't having a heart attack. And I was able to tell him that you had fentanyl. It's like, no, 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 it wasn't. It was, it's like, you know, just, it, 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 makes them, it makes them realize. And now some guy who I thought had Viagra, I'm sending him home with the prescription um, for naloxone. And I just, I've just seen that my conversation, my prevention conversation, my dialogue with my patient when I'm sending them home and I'm doing counseling is different when I tell them that you were exposed to fentanyl, especially not the ones who know that they're using, but especially for the ones who don't realize that they're using. And um, so we, we have legislation now um, on the table hearing next week. So wish us luck. Um, SB 864, that would require all the hospitals that if you're going to do a drug test for whatever reason, you know, if you don't want to order it, don't order it. But if you're going to order it and you're going to find out about PCP and THC and opiates, you're going to get fentanyl. And it, the the reagent, 
the fentanyl reagents called by ARC reagent works on any chemical analyzer. And every single hospital in America has a chemical analyzer. Um, so um, with a little bit of education, I don't know why, but it, I, I realize that a lot of labs don't understand that. And it, it took some education uh, of, you know, how to buy the reagent and where to put it in that you, you every, there's not even the rural hospital of America has a chemical analyzer and is able to include fentanyl. It's just a matter of education and uh, the 75 cents it takes to buy that reagent. I will bring that back to my lab, but we are getting the material, the technology to do it. So that's, so that's great. And, I, but I'll definitely bring that back. Um, I, you know, I, I, I hope nobody walks away thinking I said that there's never a need to do it. I think your description of a case is spot on and those people should get it. And you also said, I think where we do have pretty good common ground is that for somebody who comes in and said, I used opioids, I overdosed, sending a test is probably not worthwhile, right? They, we, we know what they did. We, we proved that they did what they said they did, but we just spent a hundred dollars to do it. So I don't know that that's... Unless we're wrong. Sometimes we're just, we're wrong, right? So Here's a good analogy. See if you back me up on this one. So a lot of times we have this with people who are drunk in the ER, right? And it's like, oh, that person's just drunk. And we're going to let them sober up in the corner there until until they're better. But then, you know, an hour or two comes by, it's like, you know, they're not waking up. Let's check. And in, mm -hmm. and I'm sure this has happened in, in your emergency department. That alcohol level comes out as zero. And now you're like, well, need to rethink my diagnosis here. Uh, my My first assumption was wrong. It's happened way too often. And you're 100% right. Alcohol is a slightly different animal than naloxone, particularly if somebody responded to naloxone um, where they said they did. But you're right. Listen, that's why medicine is an art, not a science. Yeah. There's no rules. That's why we are all independent practitioners. And I, again, there are times to get it. There are times to not get it. Um, you have to think about the risk benefit, the cost benefit, the efficacy, the practicality, the, the likelihood of false positives and false negatives. And it, it's a decision process. It's not, right. there's no... Uh, absolutely. So I, I would agree with you on that. What, what I like about this California law is it, it does not shove down your throat what how to practice medicine. You practice medicine like you want to. I'm not telling you to order anything. I'm just saying that if you ordered it, wouldn't it be nice if you had fentanyl since that's a number one drug that we're seeing that's taking lives in America? Yeah, you know, we do the same thing with HIV testing and hepatitis C testing, right? In many places, when you draw blood on somebody, they run it for HIV testing. Right, because people don't know they have HIV in many cases. You'd be surprised. A small but real percentage of people are surprised by the outcome of those tests, you know. And and it's a big public health effort to do things like that. You love controversial subjects, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, this discussion's going everywhere because I, I I've seen that, and, and we have laws in California every year. They go, we we want the ER doctors every time to do HIV and Hep C testing. And actually, I've been one of the ones to say no because one is. I don't want to deal with the results, right? I, you're gonna, I'm going to get the results and then I won't be able to find you. And how am I going to counsel you with this positive result? I'm not, I'm not equipped for that as an, as an ER doctor. Like, you know, if I have to in an acute situation, but, but to, to do the job of what I could think it's a public health service, the public health should be doing this job to dump that on the ER and now cause, you know, create a whole new different workload and expertise, I thought was unfair. Unless somebody uh, wants to pay for that. Right. Well, somebody is paying for it and the tests come back while they're still in the ED. It's a very rapid turnaround test. I have, I have my misgivings about it too. Don't get me wrong, but it is something that's being viewed as a public health effort. It's very hard to capture people to go get HIV tests, but if they're a captive audience, getting them done now, 
um, is, is a pretty straightforward thing to do. We don't deal with the results. We tell them or not. Uh, we do usually tell them. Um, and then we send them to the, uh, to the proper follow-up clinic. It, it's, it's not that often that it turns out positive unexpectedly, but it does happen. And I would agree. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not one that feels EED is the place to necessarily solve every ill of society, but sometimes there are times when you, you have a contact with a patient and with healthcare that you can do things that would be very hard to otherwise do. And given that HIV is a treatable disease now, and if people don't know they have it, they will give it to other people potentially, and they won't get treated for it. Look, I mean, I, you, you can extend this analogy to a million different things. Um, and whether it's a, you know, a public health benefit and it, it, it's, it's a cost benefit positive, meaning favorable, um, is up for debate. And it's it's a it's a big debate in healthcare, and I, I so I won't disagree with you disagreeing because I'm not sure I disagree with you not agreeing with me. I, and, I think there's and, a and there's I'll, a lot I'll, of shades I'll, here. I'll go 360 with you that maybe if you're working in an ER that's really high risk and you know that that's an area, then you're really you're, you you are doing a public service. But to say like all of California, every time you draw any blood test, that you should uh, do this, I think that that's also. Um, Again, like we, we talked about. Um, tell us about fentanyl strips. Um, that's different than, you know, drug testing of urines of people in the hospital. This is more like to use for, I want to know there's that there's no fentanyl in my cocaine that I purchased or in the Xanax tablets. Um, what's the benefit of, and is that something that's good to use and promote? Right. So, so fentanyl strips are these little devices <clears throat> that... Uh, you put some of the drug on and it will, like a pregnancy test, it'll give you a plus minus if there's fentanyl in it. The idea was originally used for testing heroin for fentanyl because early on, obviously, in the 2013, 2014, 15 range, the amount of fentanyl was increasing in the heroin supply. So people would use what they thought was heroin, but it would actually have fentanyl and would overdose because they weren't mixing the fentanyl in properly because they hadn't figured that out yet because it was so early in the in the rise of, of fentanyl. Um, in New Jersey and probably in many states, 97% of our heroin, quote unquote, has fentanyl in it. So that test strip has no value because every time you test it, it's going to have fentanyl. The concept was oh, my heroin has fentanyl in it, I'll use less or I'll use safely, I'll have a bystander, I'll keep naloxone around, but now it all has it. So there's no point in doing the testing if it's gonna be positive all the time. But as you nicely pointed out, and, and the cadets are a good example of this, I think, there is fentanyl in many products. Obviously we talked about counterfeit pills, you're buying what you think is oxycodone, Percocet, and it turns out that it's fentanyl. If you would have scraped a little of that onto a test strip, you would have found that it wasn't oxy, but in fact it was fentanyl. Cocaine, a small but a measurable percentage of cocaine has fentanyl in it. And that's at least what the media says, the cadets down in Florida were trying to use cocaine, which had fentanyl. In it. it's, it's actually in um, 25 to 50% of cocaine deaths have fentanyl. Um, right. I, I, but does that mean they used it in the same product or they could have just used both drugs? It means they, so they, it means they died and both those drugs were 
on their death Correct. toxicology. But a lot of people that use cocaine use fentanyl. So it's so the ones that we're going to be testing of any, that are of any use are the, the cocaine products that may or not have fentanyl. My, my numbers were usually much lower than that for the actual cocaine containing fentanyl, but I don't, I don't have any inside knowledge. I do agree with you that a lot of people that die of cocaine also have fentanyl, but I do think that most of those people use cocaine and use fentanyl. Not that they take one product that in unknowingly un, un, have both. Now, maybe some of these cocaines are sold knowing they have fentanyl in them. The cadets didn't know that the cocaine had fentanyl, I presume, although I, I don't know that nobody can. Um, so the idea of using it to test those and then saying, okay, my cocaine has fentanyl in it either. I mean, optimally, I would throw it out which is not gonna happen. I would use safely, which means I'll take a 10th of the dose I would normally take. I'll make sure one of us in the group is not using in case one of us overdoses. Um, I'll have naloxone on hand, which you should probably have anyway. So maybe there'd be some, some response to the positive test. But the test works. I mean, there's no question. It's whether the test, not, not whether the test can test for fentanyl, it works for that, but whether the response to a positive test or to a negative test is appropriate. My concern about a negative test particularly nowadays with the nitazines out there, is that if somebody tests their heroin and it's negative for fentanyl, we don't know it doesn't have a nitazine in it, right? So it may wind up having some counterproductive effect because now they say, oh, it's heroin. There's not any dangerous fentanyl, but they don't know that there's not a dangerous nitazine. So I do think that we have to be a little bit careful about those. In some places like New Jersey, for example, testing strips are considered paraphernalia and they're not legal to use. Um, I do see a value, but I also see a, a downside. Uh, whether or not people who use drugs have the wherewithal to make rational decision-making in the heat of the moment, I'm not clear about. I know when they're not in the heat of the moment, they answer all the, all the survey questions correctly and people believe they work. I don't know that we've seen a huge public health benefit to using them. But I also don't think that in the big picture, they're particularly risky. Whether there's a cost benefit, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Because um, there is a big like harm reduction push to, to push um, fentanyl strips and say, okay, this is part of our harm reduction. And, and, and the only way I think that that's beneficial is for the people who are, and that, and that amount of population is going down, who don't think that there's fentanyl in their stuff. Right. And then that, right. that could be helpful. Um, unfortunately, I'm seeing more people who are actually going straight to fentanyl. So like, it's like, well, it's like, okay, that's what I wanted to buy. Um, right. And I didn't think about the nitazine thing. Now I realize we need nitazine strips. We do. Right. So one of the one of the other problems with the fentanyl testing strips is I, I said this earlier, but I'll just re-say it. They are plus minus. They're quant they're qualitative. So what you don't know is if there's one molecule of fentanyl or if the entire drug sample is fentanyl. So it's very hard to dose adjust based on a positive test strip. So while, you know, if you go up to the average drug user, you say, oh, there's fentanyl that's really dangerous, use less, maybe they'll use half or a quarter, but they probably have to use one one hundredth of the amount. I can't tell you if how it, many people ended up in the ER with that same thing. It's like, I used less. It's like, yeah, it's, you still ended up requiring naloxone. <laughs> Right. And that, so that's, that's the problem. And again, it is harm reduction, but everything has risk and benefit. And so, you know, there's this whole concept of risk compensation, people call the Peltzman effect, I guess, back in the days of airbags, and seatbelts. Um, but it's the fact that when people believe they're at a lower risk, they take more risk, right? So when you put a seatbelt on somebody, 
they drive a little faster. When you put a football helmet on a football player that's well padded, they hit harder with their head, right? And this is just, again, it's, it's one of those human nature things. So by providing people with a little bit of information that might actually reduce their harm, they take greater risk, right? And, and there's no reason to think drug users are any different than football players or anybody else. And it's always a big problem. Wow. Does that mean we're going to have more drug use because we're uh, passing out more naloxone and people can feel like they're using safely? Well, the, the, some, again, it depends on who you believe. I mean, I, as, a, as, as, a, as a kind of a purveyor of you nature, like most of us are, people are people. And it's hard to believe that, you know, if I were in that situation, and we've all been in that situation, where you're given the ability to do something for whatever reason that you wouldn't necessarily normally do, you do it, you know, you take a little, you, a little, I'm not saying you go crazy, but we all take, we cut corners, we take liberties. It's just kind of human nature. I don't see any reason to think that they would be any different. So um, I do have some concerns personally that despite what they answer on surveys as what they would do if they had naloxone, I do find it hard to imagine that they wouldn't push the envelope a little bit because they knew if they overdosed, somebody would be there to give them naloxone. I just, it just doesn't make sense to me that that wouldn't be true. I, I, I would, I, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, that, that naloxone is a life-saving drug that even if it was going to increase some drug use, that the, the cost benefit um, of saving someone who would otherwise be dead is worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And I have another answer to that. But I, I just, you know, I started an naloxone distribution program. I've advocated, I strongly believe in, in naloxone distribution. Uh, and, you know, it's the same thing with seatbelts. So seatbelts should have saved X number of lives, but they only saved two thirds of the number of lives they should save because of that risk compensation. So naloxone might supposedly save X number of lives, is only going to save two thirds of those lives, but that's a lot more lives than we would have saved without it. So even if what I'm saying is true, there is some risk compensation. They use a little more, a little unsafer. Um, I do think in the big picture, it's going to be a good thing. And we've been using it for years now, and I'm I'm fully a believer in using naloxone. But one thing that's interesting um, about naloxone is that even though it does save lives, I don't think it saves as many lives as we think it does. And, and there's a reason for that. Most people who get naloxone probably wouldn't have died without it. Now, now, the problem with that is you don't know who would have died. So you have to give it to everybody. So its use is totally appropriate. But many of these places, jurisdictions and, and public health campaigns have said we've saved 10,000 lives with naloxone. But what they really mean is they've reversed 10,000 overdose with naloxone. But every overdose patient that, you know, every overdose patient doesn't die, right? There's, you know, what exactly is an overdose? To your point, there's no right dose. But an overdose in concept is somebody who's sleepy and unconscious and poorly arousable. But most of those people look like that every time they use drugs. And then they wake up and do it again and again and again. So most of them wouldn't die. If you came upon somebody laying on the street with an opioid overdose, you would not know if they were the one who was going to die or if they're going to be the one who's going to, the 999 who are going to wake up. And, and, and even as a doctor, drug. I don't know that. Um, and sadly, I see the ones that like waited too long and now they have, well, they either go to the morgue and I don't see them or, or they waited too long and they're in ARDS and on a ventilator. And Correct. Right. Right. But again, I'm a big believer in naloxone. I think it should be used liberally by people. If you don't know that somebody did or didn't take an overdose, you should give it. But I, I just want to be clear that when you look at the numbers, the numbers of reversals is not the number of lives saved. I'm not suggesting we don't use it. I, yeah, I strongly believe we use it. 
But I just think we have to, again, it's about messaging and it's something we just have to be careful about. Right. Well, maybe out of, let's say, 10,000 uh, naloxone administrations was not um, 10,000 lives actually saved each time, but they were 10,000 almost deaths. They could have. We don't know. Yes. Absolutely. And we don't know who they were. Right. So again, I, I strongly believe, I'm not arguing against, but I just, again, it's the messaging. It's, it's you know, you just think about it. You're in San Diego. Um, you know, let's say there are going to be I'm going to just make up a number. 5,000 people tonight are going to overdose with opioids in San Diego, and maybe you'll have a death. I mean, how many deaths a year do you have in San Diego? 300, 400, whatever, right? Some of, of opioids. A thousand, I don't know, whatever it is. But there's a lot more than a thousand people who overdose with with with. We're at over 400 of just fentanyl. We we average two and a half fentanyl deaths a day. Okay. So, right so let's put the number at a thousand. But there are probably. 5,000 people a day who overdose, and then they just get up and use again and again and again. So, right. or, or he use, they're using, right? But since there's no proper dose, and since the effect that they're going for is an overdose, they're not looking for pain relief, they're looking to get high, right? And the act of getting high is function. See, this comes down to the semantic word overdose. Medical examiners think overdose means death. Just like some people think the word drowning means you, you die and you use the word near drowning or almost drowning. So to me, overdose means you took more than you're supposed to take, right? And in this case, you're sleepy, you're not breathing well, your pupils are small, you know, all these signs of an opioid. But that's when you're high. If I give you a tiny dose to get rid of your pain, you're not going to really get very high. You need a big dose. So most people who develop a clinical overdose but don't die, don't die, right? Yeah. Yeah, so, you're right. You're right. Um, and there's a fine line, and uh, and uh, again, and I think that, that that fine line is for semantics. Just give the naloxone. You're not going to figure out which one would have died, which who did wouldn't have died. Tell, talk to us about um, Narcan versus Cloxado, two different formulations of naloxone. Naloxone is a generic version. And the brand name is Narcan, the kind, the, the one that we're used to. And then a new formulation that's um, has uh, you know four, eight milligrams instead of four milligrams in it. Tell us, is one better than the other? In my opinion, the problem driving this issue is again an unfounded belief that naloxone can't reverse fentanyl overdose, and that's not correct. <clears throat> Naloxone is exceptionally uh, good at reversing fentanyl or any overdose that we've seen, uh, whether it's methadone or uh, nitazine or oxy. Naloxone is exceedingly potent and it's got a very high affinity for the receptor. As an aside, the only opioid that can't be reversed by naloxone is buprenorphine, which is not a drug we worry really that much about with people overdosing. Totally separate subject, but it's an opioid. Um, the reason that some people need higher doses for a reversal is either they're one of those very few people who take a massive dose of fentanyl. And because naloxone is a competitive antagonist, right? Competitive antagonist, it competes for binding to that receptor. So there's an opioid receptor, there's a heroin or a fentanyl molecule binding it, there's an naloxone that has to knock it off. If there's a million fentanyls and one naloxone, it's not going to win. If it's one-to-one, -one, it's going to win every time. 
So for the majority of people who overdose with fentanyl, they take a dose that's easily reversed by naloxone. But the reason naloxone appears not to work in some patients is because it's given too late. To your point, you got to give it early because once you're not breathing long enough, your brain starts to malfunction. You develop what we, what we call hypoxic encephalopathy, right? And that is in varying degrees. Early on, you could, you know, it wears off in 15 minutes. Later on, you never recover and your brain dead, right? So you want to catch these people when they're still reversible. So if I give you a big slug of fentanyl and I'm giving you naloxone right away, you're going to wake right up. But if I leave you laying there for, for 10 minutes, poorly breathing, your brain not getting oxygenated, when I give you naloxone, you're not going to wake up. I've knocked the, I've knocked the opiate off the receptor, but your brain just can't reverse because it's not poisoned anymore. It's now hypoxic. So those are the two the big reasons. Who, we who, who I did catch in time, but I need to give them another dose and another dose. They keep falling asleep and then they wake up and then I end up putting them on a Narcan drip, not even Cloxato, just a drip in the ICU because it's lasting forever. I've never really understood. Is it just they took so much more naloxone and that's why I need them on a drip? No. I'm, they've took so much more um, fentanyl. Is that why they need to be on so a drip? There are a few answers to that, but just, just to finish that, that last point up. So one of, the, one of the reasons this other preparation came out is because this unfounded belief that these potent opioids, again, it comes back to miscommunication, but these opioids are so potent, they need a greater um, dose of naloxone to reverse them. Remember, potency has very little to do with reversibility. Reversibility has to do with affinity. So not how many milligrams per kilogram it takes to have an effect, which is potency, but how tightly the, the opioid binds to the opioid receptor. Naloxone has a higher affinity than all these opioids. So in the, except for those very massive overdoses or in people who, who have hypoxic encephalopathy, naloxone always works. And even in the hypoxic patients, naloxone is working to do what it's supposed to do. The patient doesn't wake up. So I think the problem with these very high dose opioid uh, naloxone preparations is that the biggest risk of naloxone far and away is the precipitation of opioid withdrawal, which is not a benign event. When you develop abstinence related opioid withdrawal that occurs over a day, it's, it's slow to develop it's insidious and you do okay with it and it's never kills anybody. There are very few adverse effects. It's miserable, you crave, your, your, your bones hurt, you vomit. I mean, it's not a pleasant thing to go through, but you don't die. But when I bring you from coma to full-blown withdrawal in one minute by giving you a big dose of naloxone, you get really sick. People have heart attacks, they have strokes, they have seizures, they have, you said ARDS, pulmonary edema, they get that. It's a very risky thing to do. So rather than giving a four milligram dose and going to an eight milligram dose, I think they should go from a four milligram dose to a one milligram dose. Right? <laughs> going in the wrong direction and guided, right? Because all, remember the end point of naloxone reversal is not awakening, it's breathing, it's breathing. So all you need is for your patient to breathe. So I think again, it's misguided. To answer your other question, the, the degree, the, the length of time that somebody is opioid intoxicated depends on the opioid. Um, it depends on the dose to some extent. Um, and it depends a little bit on the reversal agent that you use. Naloxone lasts about an hour. Most opioids that we take in that hour have gone through about a half-life of, 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 um, of, of uh, elimination, which means that if you have a level of X, 
of your heroin, an hour later when the naloxone wears off, or maybe two hours later, you're going to have half X. In most people, half X is associated with awakening because X is high, half X is not high, but it's, but sometimes half X could still be above wake up and be normal again. So you need to give a second dose. That's particularly true with longer acting opioids. Certainly methadone, we see this because methadone has got a half-life measured in about 24 hours, not in one or two hours. Um, so, so methadone users that overdose often need to get put on naloxone infusions. Most of the routine opioids, heroin, oxy, hydro, uh, things like that don't really need to go on naloxone infusions, but heavy fentanyl users sometimes do. So there's an issue. Issue one is what's the indication for, for the naloxone infusion? Is it resedation or is it not breathing, right? It can be not breathing. Sometimes these patients aren't breathing. They get a little naloxone, they breathe, and then the naloxone wears off and they stop breathing. They need to go on, on a naloxone infusion. If it's just that they fall asleep again, I sometimes would avoid putting them on the naloxone infusion, but it's a, it's a little uncomfortable. But you know, with a capnometer in the hospital, which measures your carbon dioxide levels and a pulse oximeter, which measures your oxygen levels, we could pretty much monitor these people pretty carefully. With fentanyl, and the thing to know about fentanyl that makes it a little unique and one of the things that it's a different topic, but that makes starting them on buprenorphine for treatment so hard is that even though fentanyl is a very short acting opioid when used on its own once, when used repetitively, because it's very lipophilic, meaning it loves to live in the fat, it becomes a long acting drug, right? So you take your fentanyl and you get high, I give you an aloxone, your fentanyl drops, but now it all starts coming out of your fat into your blood. So your fentanyl levels actually don't fall very much, right? Because it's, it's, when you use it a lot, it's living there and it's, it's equilibrating back into the blood. So those patients sometimes do need to get put on naloxone infusions if that level that they build back up to is above the respiratory threshold. So they slow their breathing down again. Right. And you do see that with a lot with a lot of heavy fentanyl users. Again, not one dose. You give somebody a slug of fentanyl to boost their shoulder, you're done. They're not going right, to stop breathing right. an hour. Okay. Later. So I think you explained that nicely. So if I'm putting people on a naloxone drip because of fentanyl, it's because they're a chronic user and it's coming out of their fat. Correct. That's just right. Very Correct. nice. Yeah. Thank you. Um I'll I just comment. When I when I saw Cloxado come out, my my thoughts were um really anger at the FDA. Like you're spending money on this instead of making naloxone over the counter for everybody else. <laughs> it's like, That's like you could have spent, you could have made it free, right? You could have made it over the counter, but now we're, we're you know, and, and they're a great company, you know, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they are a generic company and they're selling it for the same price point as, um, as Narcan and they're, they're doing good with it. So no blame on the company, but really as a country, this is where we're, we're developing new um, brand names instead of going generic. That's, that yeah. was my yeah. point of contention. <laughs> the only, the only blame I throw out here is that it's a drug we don't need. It's going in the wrong direction. The, the downside is we're going to have more precipitate withdrawal. We're going to have more pulmonary edema. We're going to have more really unhappy people when we don't need that. So I think, you know, the, 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 the other drug that's, that's on the offing is nalmethine, which is a long acting opioid antagonist. Not now. Tell it. What is that? It's called nalmethine. Um, it's a drug we used to have available in the United States. It went away and it's coming back again by, again, a misguided belief 
that naloxone doesn't last long enough. Now, remember the vast, vast, vast majority of people, one dose of naloxone is all they need. Um, in the very specific situation you're talking about, sometimes you need a little more. And most of the time we don't give it because they're not breathing. We give it because they're a little sedator than they want them to be. The last thing we need is a long acting opioid antagonist. Because when we give them naloxone and they go into withdrawal, the best part about that is it only lasts an hour. But what now if it starts lasting eight hours? Because that's how long naloxone lasts. That's exactly what we don't want. There's really no benefit to a drug like that. It's dangerous and unnecessary. But that's, that's what they're looking to market now. And again, the misguided approach or misguided belief that we need a longer acting naloxone preparation. And we don't. We don't. I'm glad I have you to, to have these discussions with us. That's great. Um, I, I want to just kind of finalize with one uh, topic, high potency THC. And, and uh, I mean, I'm seeing um, adverse effects of that every day in the emergency department. Um, cannabis-induced psychosis, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, drug interactions, people bleeding, not really from marijuana, but because they're on Coumadin and they're on marijuana or CBD. Um, and various drug interactions with their blood pressure medicines, or I, I'm actually, I don't know if you've seen this, but I've seen um, stroke code. Well, we'll have a, per, a whole stroke team come out, you know, we think we're going to like save someone with um, intervention from a stroke. And it's like, no, it's just a reaction for, for, from, from marijuana. I don't, I mean, I've got two cases of that. If you have a couple, maybe we could write something up. Um, but uh, what, are you, what are you seeing? What are you thinking? You know, a little, uh, you know, a, a, a dose makes the poison. That's that's the theme of this whole podcast, right? Whether it's fentanyl or, or THC, it's a dosing. It's the, it's the theme of life. Dose makes the poison, you know, too much of a good thing, right? Um, a little a little THC makes you mellow, makes you feel good. Maybe some people get a little anxious. Too much, it got, it's got real physiological effects. It does affect your blood pressure. It does affect your heart rate and your, your heart rhythm. There's clearly adverse effects. If, if, and I'll say this again, but the high potency nature of the cannabis isn't the problem if it's dosed properly, right? So if you want to get X amount of, of THC and your drug has a certain amount and another drug has 10 times the amount, in order to get that amount you want, and it takes one part of the low potency THC, you have to take one tenth the amount of the high potency THC to get the same amount of THC. But since that's not how people use drugs, they smoke a joint, they smoke one. This joint has 10 milligrams, this joint has 100 milligrams of THC. They're gonna get too high. They're gonna, they're gonna get THC toxic. And, and every drug has a dose response effect. And sometimes the dose response effects are predictable and sometimes they're not. But sometimes you know that a little of a drug, as the dose escalates, you get a predictable effect. Sometimes the effect you get is you escalate the dose are not predictable based on the lower doses. So high dose, high can, high high potency THC is only dangerous because it's very hard to dose properly. You know, we, I think we're asking too much. I mean, as doctors, it's hard to get people's you know blood pressure just right with the blood pressure medicines or diabetes medicine just right with the amount of insulin. Sometimes it takes a year to get that dosing just right, and yet we expect people to go, oh, here have your high potency THC, just use less, or or it's all that you know. I don't see how you expect the lay public to do that right when we can't even do that right in the medical profession. Very hard, very hard. Well, that's one of the problems with marketing the high potency cannabis is it's not, I don't think it's reasonable to expect people to understand it. Listen, some of the places that didn't use to put the doses on the preparations they were selling, right? You remember there was that nice piece by the New York Times 
columnist when she went to Denver uh, when they first started selling um, uh, edibles and she bought a cookie and she ate the whole cookie, not realizing that it was actually 18 doses in that one cookie. She was supposed to eat one eighteenth of the cookie. Do you, I don't remember that piece. Yeah. But I mean, again, do you expect people just to eat a bite of a cookie? I mean, that's just not fair. That's right? why they come. You got to make them in unit So now you, one cookie should be 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams, not 180 milligrams in a cookie. And so maybe the packaging said it, maybe it didn't. But we don't sell anything in, in, the, in the medical world without clear dosing instructions associated with them. So I don't know why we think medical cannabis or recreational cannabis should be any different. We should be able to sell it in, in this is the dose. This is how much you should take. This is how much is in the preparation. You could do your own math. But somehow we have to, we have to you know, message to people what a safe dose is. And, and know about drug interactions and know about the risk of psychosis. And know, you know, people need to be informed um, consumers, and they're not now when it comes to cannabis, which is very different than meth or cocaine or fentanyl. People kind of understand the risks of that and tobacco and alcohol. Marijuana is different. I like to point that one up because that's something where we're, where the public is not informed or is misinformed. And so I want to like, what a great discussion. I want to end. Thank you, Andrea. Andrea is a nurse who I very much love. I can't express enough thanks to her and I admire um, nursing care she provides and the teamwork of the emergency department. Andrea, I love you. Wish you and your family the very best. And Dr. Lewis Nelson, thank you for your wisdom, your education. I so appreciate being able to email you uh, uh, random headlines and have such discussion. You educate me and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun for me too. So thank you for having me. I, I've learned a lot myself. So this has been great. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This High Truths podcast is sponsored by CCR, the Center for Community Research, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. CCR is a San Diego-based nonprofit organization that has been recognized at the state and national level for community work on opioids, prescription drugs, methamphetamines, youth marijuana prevention, and data evaluation. Learn more about CCR at ccrconsulting.org. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.